Alrighty, we come uh, in our next installments as we round the corner in our series on the Apostles' Creed as we've been using the, the creedal statement, the famous and historic creedal statement known as the Apostles' Creed to guide us through our summer months. Uh, it's top, essentially a topical series or if in the theological world, a systematic theology series uh, going over these main points of the things that we believe as a church, not just us simply as a local church, but the worldwide church the universal church across time and space. And we come today to perhaps the most controversial of the statements, other than maybe they descended into hell, but the most countercultural statement in the creed today. I believe in the Catholic Church and the communion of saints. We're going to be in Matthew 16 later on this morning. We're going to be in a number of passages before we get there, but if you want to turn your Bibles there, that'd be fine. The rest of the passages will be on the screen. I'm going to begin this way, though, by reading you two quotes. The first one from 306 A.D. from the Synod of Alvira. This is pre, before the church has become institutionalized in the sense that it had been taken over, in a sense, by Rome. It was not the national religion of sorts. It was still, in some ways, under persecution, but this is what the Synod of Alvira said. If anyone who lives in the city does not attend church services for three Sundays, let that person be expelled for a brief time in order to make the reproach public. 306 A.D. 2014 A.D. Donald Miller, prominent voice in the evangelical world, wrote a book you may have heard of called Blue Like Jazz. I enjoy Donald Miller's writings. I've given his books to people. Here's what Donald Miller says. So do I attend church? Not that often, to be honest. Like I said, it's not how I learn, end quote. Church history, other than for perhaps the last 150 years, there was no dividing line between your involvement with Jesus and your involvement with the physical expression of Jesus' body in this world, which is what we call the church. The sentiment of theologians over the years in the vast majority of historical theologians and those who read the scriptures has followed the sentiment of Cyprian of Carthage who wrote this, there is no salvation apart from the church. You cannot have Christ as your father if the church is not your mother, is another quote. For many years, though, there has been a growing distrust of organized Christianity and the church as an institution, and much of that is the fault of the church itself, but some of that is also simply the milieu of the culture in which we live in. We are a people who are individualistic, who do not align and connect ourselves with others, who don't see the need for institutions and for organisms, who we do not like to live under authority or submit ourselves in any way, shape, or form, or frankly live authentic Christian lives at all. People have even become ashamed of even saying that they are Christians, which simply means like Christ. Don't find that too offensive, but we are so afraid of being aligned with anything connected to the church, the physical and visible church, that we have even shunned that word for something more like, I just like to follow Jesus. I'm just a spiritual person. It takes a whole lot of faith, therefore, in this day and age to say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church 
and the communion of saints. For some this morning to state such a thing would be the most radical countercultural statement you may have ever made. To believe in the church. So let's look this morning at what it means to believe in the church and why we can have confidence in the church. I'm going to give you three points, three kind of uh, things just to hold as a hat rack this morning as we walk through our discussion of the church. First is this, is the description of the church. Second, we'll look at the dilemma of the church. And third, we'll look at the dynamism of the church, or the power of the church. Simply want to use the description of the church as is given to us in the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed in saying that it's a holy Catholic church and it's a communion of saints is rather redundant here. We'll look at two, two different descriptions that it gives us there. First is it calls us as a church holy saints. Now that is a redundant statement. Because it says there that the church itself is holy, but then it also says that it's comprised of who? Saints. Now what does the word saints mean? Holy ones. Or those who have been simply set apart. What the creed is telling us is the church as a whole in its corporate, visible, and physical setting. And the church comprised of people who are holy people is a holy nation. We see this throughout the scriptures. It's who we are in an object of status before the Lord. And it's who we're becoming. When it talks about our holiness as a church, it does so. The scriptures talk about it in three ways, or two ways in particular that I'll look at this morning for just a moment here. First is the church is holy because it is set apart from the rest of the world. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood and you are a holy nation. That is what we are objectively before God. And But what it's saying there in 1 Peter 2.9 is that is not that we are perfectly holy in that our, we, have, we are perfectly moral and there is no issues or sins within our church or any bad behaviors by the church either corporately or by the people that comprise the church. But what it is saying there is that we are set apart. In the Old Testament, in the, in the, in the temple sacrifices and the temple liturgy, there were utensils, even spoons and forks and knives that were described as holy. They were ordinary things But because they were used for the worship of God in the temple of God by the people of God, they were declared to be holy. They were set aside from all other utensils, from other sports, they probably had those too, forks and knives, it was KFC, and forks and knives and other spoons, they were set aside from them for a different purpose. In the same way, we are not unlike the rest of the world. We came into this world broken, we are physical fleshly beings. We are fallen, we are sinful people, but we have been called out from that to serve a particular purpose in God's world, which is to glorify him with our lives. And in so doing, as being called out, as being the ones who are set aside, we are to seek to live pure lives, holy lives, blameless lives. We are to do the things that God has called us to do, to engage in the mission that he has given us in this world. That is why he has called us out. That is why he has set us aside from the rest of the world. So that's one way in which the scriptures talk about our holiness. It's simply that we are set apart for a particular task. But for why are we set apart? So what ends are we set apart? And the answer for that is to become holy. See, in the scriptures we are described as currently holy in that we are set apart. And also objectively before God, God sees the righteousness of Christ and the holiness of Christ upon you. And so objectively right now you stand before him corporately and individually as a holy people. But also what we see in the scriptures is that we are people who are moving towards holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, looks, points us to the fact of what our end goal is to be. It says this, but just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being built up into a holy priesthood. We are holy and we are not holy. We are moving towards holiness. And so what we say, what we are saying, as it says in Ephesians 5, that Christ came to make, to call for himself a bride, which he will in the end make what? Pure, spotless, and blameless. So therefore, to say that you believe in a holy church and a communion of saints is to say that you believe that we are set apart as God's church and as God's people for his particular work in this world. And we are also saying is that he has called us out in order to make us pure and blameless in the future. So that's the first description of the church. We are holy, a holy people, a holy church. But the second description we see in the creed is we are a Catholic communion. The creed describes the church as a Catholic communion. It is the holy Catholic church, and it is a communion of saints. So the two words there, are Catholic and communion. First, just really briefly, what does that word Catholic mean? And oftentimes when you, when in Protestant churches, when we recite the phrase, uh, from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. You'll see a little dot there, and there will be a note down at the bottom that says universal church. What that word Catholic literally means in the Greek, it comes from the word katholikos, which means universal. Which means when we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we are believing in the church universal. That is the church that spans across time and space and that runs across all over the world. This is not simply the church that you see sitting with you today. This is the church that came before you, that will come after you. That is the church worshiping in Africa, in India today, not just here. That's what it means when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. 1 Corinthians 1-2 describes this just to give you some biblical uh, weight behind it. To the church, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to a specific church in a particular city called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. In every place and in every time, that is what the church, the Catholic church is. Now, I think this view would be quite helpful We are not talking here about the Roman Catholic Church and that we all submit to the Pope. That is a particular expression of God's church in this world, one that has its many flaws and failures, which is why the church was reformed and many people pulled out of it. We are not answering to him when we say that we are a Catholic church. We're talking about the fullness and the expression of God's body across time and space. And this this expression is needed. Particularly in a place like America where, we, where the church is dwindling and we feel like we're losing our power, which I'll address later, might be a good thing. But often the perspective, because what surrounds us is, we, is this failure and this lack of significance to the church in the places where we live, is we tend to have this henny penny, the sky is falling, everything is going to hell around us. That's what we say and what we believe often, but that's not the truth if we actually look at the Catholic church. And for much of the world around us, on the global south and South America and East Asia, the church is exploding in its growth. And it's not simply health and wealth gospel like people would like to tell you. The church is growing in leaps and bounds as Christianity always has. It has always gone to the next horizon. And that's what it's doing now. So we see that the church is Catholic. But the second, we also see the church as a communion of saints. What does it mean for something to be a communion? is to have a common, a unity around a common 
thing, uniting around a commonality. And the New Testament is bristling and bubbling with descriptions of this common union. First, Ephesians 4, 4 and 5 does a great job of summarizing all that unites us, the one things that unite us together as God's people. It says there that we are one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we have one God and Father over all. I want to take one of those, one of those, those images there, and there's a number of them, but I want to take one of them, which is simply the idea of the body of Christ. You're familiar with this term, the body of Christ, which is used in a number of places in the scriptures, in particular the New Testament. And particularly we see this in 1 Corinthians 12, where, where Paul there talks about the description of all the gifts that God has given to his church, where some people are hands, and some people are eyes, and some people are, are ears, describing how the church and the body are supposed to work together for the mission of God. I want to draw this image of the body of Christ in two ways. I'm going to make two statements. The first is this, that through the one, Jesus, in the body of Christ, we are united to the many. Through the one, we are united to the many. What is the one in the body of Christ? It is the head of the body. Colossians 1.18 says this, And he, that is Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. The church, we, have a, we are united together because we have one head. There are many parts and many members, but we are drawn together. 1 Corinthians 12, 12-14 reiterates this, saying, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. Through Christ Jesus, we were many, but now we have become one. We are connected through the Spirit in one faith to one Christ. The church is a people, therefore what this means is a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people of all giftings and personalities, of every socioeconomic group, and of every race that is gathered together around Christ Jesus. That is what it means for us to be a communion. And you see, we see this communion even communicated. This is what Jesus is after, even the very shape of the cross. Often as Christians, because in America in particular, we have this very individualistic approach. And we believe what Jesus did is he died on a singular pole that made us individually right with God. And that is true and that is lovely. But he did not die on a straight singular piece of wood, did he? He died on a piece of wood that was both vertical and it was horizontal. And what we see in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, when we ask, we ask the question, why Jesus died, we see it answers it this way. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is the hostility between us and God by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And here's the key point, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. The two, what he's talking about there, is Jew and Gentile. All peoples have been made one man in Christ Jesus, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, the hostility that is killed is two ways. It is the hostility between Jew and Gentile, between different people who are then brought together in Christ Jesus, and then Christ Jesus is the one man who then unites us to God the Father. That's why Cyprian can say there is no salvation apart from the church. Because the church is the one, all the peoples who have been united to Christ. And what Paul is painting here is a picture of the cross that is saying that Christ is uniting every race and every ethnicity and every gender together in Christ Jesus. 
He has put an end to the hostility between us and God. There is no wrath for us. But at the same time, he is putting an end to all the hostility that is between us and mankind. And we see this illustrated throughout the New Testament. If there is one singular ethic that runs throughout the New Testament, it is this. There is no longer any other Jew or Gentile. It is a pervading ethic that dominates the New Testament. It is believe in Jesus, and it will break down all hostility. Romans, this great theological treatise by Paul for 12 chapters. He goes on, 11 chapters, he goes on and on and on, describing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the back half of that book is entirely about how the church functions as Jew and Gentile, as different people together. The reason why he needed such a thorough theological treatise on the gospel is because our issues and our differences are very vast and they're wide. And it, only, it can only take an incredible, wonderful, beautiful gospel that could unite us. We see this in the people that Jesus calls around him, the very apostles that he calls to himself. There were two men amongst the apostles. There was a man named Matthew who was a tax collector. And there was another man named Simon who was a zealot. The zealots... They were insurrectionists. Their great goal in life is to get rid of the Roman Empire, to push them out of the nation of Israel, and for Israel to be a ruling force in the world. Matthew, as a tax collector, was seen as a traitor. He gathered taxes for the people of Rome. He stole from his own people. And yet we see in Christ Jesus, these two men are united together as apostles. We see it in the apostle Saul of Paul. Before he was Paul, he was a man named Saul, and he was an Orthodox Jew in that day. He was well-trained. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he describes himself. And here's how Paul would have been taught to pray, as was a common prayer in that day for an Orthodox Jew, was to get up and say, Good God, thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And yet this man who then, by the grace of God, becomes Paul, who is addressed by the cross of Jesus Christ, then in Galatians 3.28 later says, goes the complete opposite of those three statements and says, in Christ Jesus there is now neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is neither male or female. For we are all one, united in Christ Jesus. Do you see what happens when you get the cross and you get the gospel? Your life, your worldview gets flipped upside down. And everybody around you, the way you view them is changed. Paul has destroyed the traditional understandings of how society works. Early in the early church, it was, it was, they had a fond way of saying, because the issues of Jew and Gentile were so prominent, that they would say that they were the third race. They were neither Jew and they were neither Gentile. They were Christian. They were Christ. They were the third race in this world. It's common for pastors to be asked the question, particularly in the South, is the Bible okay with interracial marriage? The answer to the Bible is unequivocally, it is not okay with interracial marriage. In this, that you are not to marry non-Christians. Every other wall has been destroyed. There is no other wall. It is all gone because we are one race in Christ Jesus. So through the one, we are united to the many. At the same way, the communion of saints also means this. That through the many, we are united to the one. And I'm going to, this is going to, maybe aggravate you a little bit, but let me be patient with me. In the hopes, I want to draw out how absolutely important the church is for your life. It is absolutely central to your life, your growth as a Christian, or even coming to know Jesus. In order to, get, to draw this out, let me communicate to you the profound unity that is being described in this image of the body of Christ. The profound unity between Christ and his church. Remember, remember Paul, when he, before he was Paul, he was Saul. And we see in Acts that he is, on a, he is a man who is persecuting the church and he's on his way to a place called damascus and while he's on the way to damascus jesus shows up as a blinding light knocks paul off his horse and what does he say paul paul why are you persecuting me 
Now, if someone were to knock you off your horse and knock you to the ground and say, why are you persecuting me? You'd imagine Paul saying, "Um, I think there's been some confusion. I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting those Christians, those people who call themselves the church. And you know what Jesus' answer is to Paul? What's the difference? If you persecute them, you persecute me. He says the same thing in Matthew 24 when he has the dividing line between those who are sheep and those who are sheep and those who are goats, who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. And he asks this question. He says that those who will go to heaven are those who took care of the broken and the poor. And they say, when did we did that? He says, well, you did the least of these brethren you did to me. See how he unites himself to his people. Now, here's the implication of this. And it's going to sound like heresy. But I'll hedge it in just a second. But feel the full weight of it first. If we are the body of Christ, we are Christ. If we are the body of Christ, we are Christ. My body and myself are not separated. This is how tightly Jesus has wound himself and united himself to us. Now, here's the issue. Are we the essence of Christ? Are we deity? No, we are not deity. But the way in which Christ has revealed and expressed himself in this world is through his physical body, which is us, the church. Let me ask it this way. Is my body me? Yes and no, right? My body is not the essence of me. It is not my soul. I am more than my body. But you cannot know me apart from my body. This is why the church is so important. This is why Cyprian can say there is no salvation apart from the church. Because you cannot know Jesus without the church. There's this place in Paul talks about how will they know if they have not heard. Who makes the gospel known to the nations? The church does. There is no salvation and there is no growth apart from the body of Christ. In much the same way, Jesus is making himself known to us and to the world through the church. There is an intimacy and identity that is wrapped up between us and Jesus, between his people and himself, so much so that we can say that the clear witness of the scriptures is the most tangible experience while you're living this life. The best way to experience Jesus now is to be here with us is to be part of God's church. That's a radical statement, but I believe it's a true statement. Here's the key proposition that you must understand, because the way people would like to hedge this is to go, well, the church is, the church is spiritual. It's invisible. The church is just kind of everywhere. And I would say, yes, the church, but the church is not simply spiritual. It is also physical. And the church is not simply invisible. It is also visible. And the church is not simply an organic organism that goes out. It is also an institution that is organized. And here I am pushing on those who believe that they don't need to be involved in any kind of institutional Christian church. When we talk about the saints gathering together, when Paul writes to the churches like Corinth and the church in Philippi, he is not writing to a bunch of disembodied souls who have gathered together in a room that nobody can see them. He's talking to a people who how our spirits are alive for Christ Jesus and whose spirits, through by the power of Christ Jesus, by the power of the Spirit living in them, lives visible, visible lives for him. You can see them. You can know them. You can see Christ Jesus in them. This is why Jesus can tell his apostles that they will know you by your love. How are they going to know Christ Jesus? Through the love of the church if we can't see the church, if we don't know what it is. 
We are talking about a people who are not simply spiritually alive, but we have, who have physical bodies. The same is true when we speak of the church corporately as well. The church is invisible. In that, what we mean is that there is the invisible church, which is all those who truly believe for all time, who will be truly saved at the end, the last day. But the church invisible is made manifest in the church visible today in its physical and institutional form. And dare I say, the physical, organized, and institutional church is given by the apostles, declared a particular shape in the New Testament. That we cannot simply call every sort of Christian gathering the church. I don't have time to defend this much, but the church visible is organized in the New Testament into an institutional form. So what we see in the organized church in the New Testament, wherever the apostles go, they raise up leaders. There's authority structures in the church. There are ways in which the gifts and the mission of the church is supposed to be played out. There are ways and instructions in which the church is supposed to do life together. And we see that there are boundaries to the church, which is we understand those who are in and those who are out. That's why there's this thing called church discipline. You don't have it if you don't have walls to the church. There isn't institutional boundaries to the church. Here's what this means. It means that your homeschool group is not your church. It means that the three or four friends who are frustrated with the churches they've been attending and so have decided to gather together and listen to a sermon online and sing a few songs is not the church or it falls far short of what the church is supposed to be institutionally. And may I just say it, I feel, I'm just preaching to the choir a little bit here, but your college ministry is not the church either. I'm not saying that those things are not expressions of the church, that they are not outworkings of the church, that they are not the reach of the church going forward, that it's not the church scattered after it's been gathered together in the institution. They are part of the church, but it is not all the church is supposed to be. The New Testament has given us the form and shape of what the church is supposed to look like with elders and deacons and ways in which it is supposed to do life together. It is a call to preach God's word to administer the sacraments and to disciple, and by that I mean both the positive and the negative, the discipling of its people and the disciplining of its people. That's what a true church is. And therefore, we come to this. If Jesus asked the question, if he were to ask the question, you want to know me? Here's what his answer would be. And you have to join up with a deeply frustrating, frightening, real, physical, repeatedly disheartening, and yet joyfully rich, powerfully healing, holiness-creating people of God as they gather week in and week out in fellowship and service together. Do not abandon the local church. Do not abandon the institutional and organized church. Now, this automatically and rather immediately gives us the dilemma of the church, doesn't it? Because we are called the communion of saints. We are called a holy people, and yet we appear so often to be anything but... We're called to be blameless, and yet we live so much like the world lives. We do not live holy lives, so many of us, or even corporately, we're known for our divisiveness, for our divisions, for our infighting, and for our backbiting, for our gossip, for our gluttony. This is one of these things that we're known for. We are not holy often. We are not everything the church is supposed to be. Not to mention, we're also not a very good communion, are we? bunch of white people here this morning, right? We are not a people of all people, gather all races and socioeconomic groups into our churches. So often we are divided and divisive. We do not reflect the church and all the beauty that it's supposed to be in this world. And so there is a problem. We are not as we ought to be. 
And the answer for many people is to say, forget the church. Forget it. I'll do church on my own. It's too hard and it's too difficult. Because of the things I've just called you to in, in the first point, can I, can, I give you, can I ask you to remain in the institutional and organized church, even though it's hard? Two things I'd like to tell you to do. I, don't, I have to get, get moving forward because I'm running behind. Two things I could ask you to do. If, uh, you're here, so you're kind of around the institutional church, so I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, but remain in the church. Remain in the institutional church, whether it's this church or some other church, with a critical eye, but do not despise the church. Remain in the church with a critical eye because it is not perfect. Critique it, but do not despise the church. By despising the church, I don't mean that there's often a hot hatred for the church amongst the de-church and the people who decide, who are, they call themselves Christians but no longer uh, connect themselves to a church. But what I mean by despising the church is a neglect and a belittling of the church. It is to see it as small and insignificant in your life. That's what it means to despise the church. And the milieu of our culture of Christianity is to despise the church in this way, to have no commitment and no love for the church. We either bounce from church to church to church, we never commit ourselves to other people, we never submit ourselves to authority. And what is so sad, often when people do begin to commit themselves to a church, and just as they're beginning to grow as a Christian, God brings, allows perhaps in his providence, there to be some contention in that church. And so what do people do? They hightail it out. Perhaps, brothers and sisters, that we are brothers who are supposed to rub against one another like iron and sharpen one another. And sometimes that means forgiving other people of their sins and reconciling, and that is hard and that is painful. So often people, they get connected to a church, and just as they're beginning to grow in that place and grow in relationships, they bail because there's conflict there, and they stunt their own growth as a Christian. Because they never enter the, the beauty of what a, a, body would be, a body would be if they actually go through conflict but come out forgiving and loving one another. Perhaps all the church conflicts we, we see is God actually pruning and sanctifying his church. And not your perspective, which is just, oh, the church is just awful. You see, he does that in your life individually, doesn't he? Why couldn't he do that corporately as well? Stay in the church, have a critical eye. But don't, don't despise the church. The second I would call you to do is remain in the church with expectant hope, but gracious patience. We too often demand that our churches and the church globally be what it is supposed to be becoming without graciously and patiently waiting for the church to become that. This is often the height, I find the height of hypocrisy and arrogance amongst Christians. The churches ought to be places of love and forgiveness. It ought to be holy. Churches ought to be places of racial reconciliation. It ought to be a place where the broken and lost are cared for. It ought to be places where Jesus is loved and worshiped and glorified in all sorts of ways. Just as your life ought to be a life that cares for the broken and reaches out with the gospel and worships Jesus Christ. But you fail all the time. Yet, the patience that we would ask for ourselves, we don't give it to the corporate body. You are not finished yet as an individual, and neither is God's corporate people. And so just as Jesus has promised to finish his work in you personally, he has promised to do so in his bride corporately. The bride of Christ, talking about in Ephesians 5, where he says, I will make her beautiful, blameless, and pure, is not talking about you individually. It's talking about us together. And so yes, the church is flawed, but could you graciously hope that God would be true to his promises? Would you wait with patience? I think 
I think often our view of the church is flawed because we, have, we don't have a sense of actually how the early church looked. We think the early church was perfect. Every couple of years, there's books that come out, and the call is, we've got to become more like the early church. Okay, I'm good for us being like the early church for that first week and a half. But if you read Acts past Acts 2, that place becomes crazy in a hurry. What do we see by Acts 4? We have people that God strikes down dead because they're lying about what they're tithing to the church. We have men in the church who will not feed Gentile widows who are starving because they're not Jews. There's racism in the early church. There's lying in the early church. There's adultery in the early church. Have you read 1 Corinthians? Have you ever read Revelation 1 through 5, what Jesus says through John to the early church? The early church was not a perfect place. The church is always going to be flawed while we're on this world. I think 1 Peter gives us the right perspective. What I, and I point back to what I talked about in our holiness earlier. In verse 4 and 5 of in 1 Peter 2, it tells us what we are becoming. You will be in the future a holy priesthood. This is what we're becoming. At the same time, it tells us who we are. We are set apart. We are before God. We are perfect, rightly before him. The creed tells us who we, the church is spiritually and who the church will be eternally. It tells us who we ought to be and who we are becoming. And so have we, see the church as Christ sees the church, as flawed and broken but blood-bought and covered with the righteousness of Christ. John Stott puts it this way, on earth she the church is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. But one day she will be seen for what she is, nothing less than the bride of Christ. Free from spots, wrinkles, or another disfigurement, holy and blamed without blemish, beautiful and glorious. It is to this constructive end that Christ has been working and is continuing to work. The bride does not make herself presentable. It is the bridegroom who labors to beautify her in order to present her to himself. Too often you leave churches and you shake your fist at the church. In reality, you're shaking your fist at God that his work of sanctification in that place has not come on your timetable. Would you graciously wait? In the meantime, we need some power to stay, don't we? Because it is really hard. I have been a part of churches that have crushed my spirit I've been a part of places, there are people in churches that I've been a part of, there were seasons in my life that if I ran to people in a back alley, one of us was not coming out alive. My anger was so visceral at some of those folks. It is difficult to be in churches. We are a broken, messy, sinful people. And we're supposed to come together and suddenly everything's all hunky-dory? No. We need a power, we need a vision for what the church can be. For that, we finally get to Matthew 16. We'll take just a few minutes to close this up here with this. Pick it up in verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 21. Here we see in Matthew 16 the founding of the New Testament church. There's always been a church. But here we see the founding of it post the revelation of Christ Jesus. Pick it up in verse 13 and reading through 21. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, son Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Interesting ending there to a discussion about the church. In this passage, we see the dynamism of the church where Jesus founds the New Testament church. And I'm going to give you some background here. We're, going to, we're shifting gears. This is a quirky transition. Caesarea Philippi, let me give you some thoughts as to what's going on here, is across the Sea of Galilee from where Jesus normally does his ministry. It's outside of Israel. It is a city built by man, a man who was the son of Herod, the great Herod uh, Philip. There were museums and art, and there was great education at Caesarea Philippi. And just outside the city was a mount called Mount Hermon. It was a massive mountain in the area. It prominently stood out. And what scholars have found and archaeologists have found, at the, at the bottom of that mountain, there is a prominent and significant cave. It is the base and the foundation of the mountain. And it's generally thought by most commentators that this is the spot where Jesus is teaching his disciples about the church. Now, there is some folklore about this mountain and about this cave. It was believed by the Canaanites who resided in that area that in that cave resided Baal. Now, Baal was the god of death. And it was there that during the winter months, Baal would go hibernate. So this was not the kind of place you wanted to hang out in the spring because apparently Baal has the same kind of habits as bears. So in the spring, you don't want to hang out in front of the cave, but it's in front of this cave that is believed that Jesus asked the question, who do you guys say that I am? Peter, they answer about the thoughts of the day, and then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, gosh darn it, he gets it right. He says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And do you see the contrast there? They're standing before the cave of Baal, the god of death. And who does Peter say Jesus is? The son of the living God. Now Jesus turns to Peter, and essentially, though, after Peter has identified Jesus, Jesus then turns around, and because of Peter's confession, he then identifies who Peter is. He says, you have identified me, so now in light of your confession, let me identify you. And he says this, you are Peter. Petros is the Greek word, the rock. Now we think that's pretty cool, that Peter is the rock. It is a cool nickname, but if we understand the full grasp, the context, maybe she would shine a different light on what he's saying here. Remember, Jesus is speaking in front of Mount Hermon, a massive mountain in the area. And the Greek word for mountain was not Petros or Petros. It was Petras. One little letter difference. O to A. Petros meant great mountain. Petros, with an O, meant little stone. This is a play on words that Jesus is using. He's telling Peter that he is the Petros, a little rock, a little stone, a small rock in front of the giant rock of this mountain. And this giant mountain represents the world, remembering that it is the dwelling place of Baal. It represents all that is against the sons of the living God, all that is evil in this place. And here is Peter, one small little stone, and Jesus says, upon this small little stone, I will build my church, and this mountain will not prevail against it. This huge rock of wickedness of this world will not prevail against this small little church, this tiny little place. Now, here's the question. How will the church prevail? In Matthew 16, Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And here's what he's pointing to and what he's referring to. You see out of that cave, there would have been a gate 
that covered that cave so that people would not fall into it and also so it would keep them from rousing Baal in his anger. There was a gate there. And so when he says the gates of hell will not prevail, he is alluding to these gates. And it sounds that like these gates are on the, they, as we think about it, we think of hell as being an offensive tool. But gates aren't used for the offense, are they? Gates, you don't pick gates up and rush at people. They're too heavy. Well, to understand this, we have to understand that Jesus is a God who goes on the offensive. You see, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus gets in a boat with some of his disciples, a small little boat, and Jesus goes to sleep. And they're crossing from the Israelite side of the Sea of Galilee over to the Canaanite side of Galilee. You have to understand that Baal is also the God of water and nature. And what happens when they get in that boat and they start crossing over the lake? A enormous storm. And here the apostles, believing what they believe, probably the same uh, ideas and thoughts of the region, got scared. Because it looks like Baal is kicking up his heels and he's going to try to kill them. But what does Jesus do? He gets up and he calms the wind and the waves. He has authority. He's entering into Baal's territory and he is on the offensive, and he's going to win. And then what do they do? They land on the other side, and he runs into a guy named the Gerasim demoniac, a man who is filled with different demons, and he knocks all those demons out, and he sends them into a herd of pigs. You know the prominence of pigs over in that area? The thing that Baal declared that people had to sacrifice to him was pigs. Jesus slaughters his sacrifices. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is not on the defensive. Jesus is on the offensive. And that is what he's saying about the church. He says, when the gates of hell will not prevail against you, it is not an issue of the gates being picked up and coming at us. It is the fact of what Jesus is doing as he is entering into the cave of Baal, who is who? The God of death. This is why Jesus later on reads this in verse 21. This is why it ends in that strange way with Jesus pointing to his own death. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What is Jesus saying he's going to do? I'm going to enter into the gates of hell, into the gates of death. I am going on the offensive. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised again on the third day. He's not waiting for Baal to come at him. He's going directly at it. And so what he's saying is, church, I'm entering into the gates. I'm entering into the belly of the mountain, into the depths of Sheol and death myself, and I will destroy it for you. Here's why the church will not be prevailed against. With all its flaws and its blemishes and its weaknesses, it's all the sense in many parts of the world where it's being slaughtered, it will not be prevailed against because Jesus has entered death. He has gone into the mountain that represents all that is evil and wicked against the, in the world that is coming up against his church, and he is saying, no way. I will destroy all the principalities and authorities of this world. And what he says to us, he later on says, you must take up a cross, O church, and follow me. What he's saying is, you, you, you latch onto me. You're united to me, and you follow me into the cave. Because there I'm destroying all the evil things in this world. Here's why you should be a part of the church. Because Jesus died for the church. And because Jesus undergirds the church, even in all its weaknesses. Brothers and sisters of the American church, we are scared out of our minds because of what is going on, right? We have lost our quote-unquote power. But maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing because maybe then we get restored to the fact that we have one who goes before us and we take up a cross and we look to the one who has made us victorious. Why should you give your life for the church? Why should you commit yourself to her? Because we're promised victory in Christ Jesus. And that victory is won for the church. Let's pray.
Dear Jesus, this was provocative in some ways, and it pushed against us in many ways. We are people who are scared of commitment. We are scared of being authentic. We have been burned by your people. And gracious God, we confess right now that we are not the holy people that we ought to be. That we don't reflect the beauty of the church as we ought to. Forgive us, Lord, for that. Gracious God, I pray that you would keep us committed to one another because of our commitment to Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that when it gets hard for us in the church that we would not run away from one another, but it would be then that we re-engage, that we look to the gospel of Jesus, we would look to the power and authority that he has given us, the strength that he has given us, and that we'd enter into relationships armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ that allows us to humble ourselves, that allows us to lay down our lives for other brothers and sisters in the church. Gracious God, I pray that you would rise up, raise up your church. Lord, we thank you for the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail. But Lord, lead us out into mission into the dark places of our city and our county in this world. May we go holding the banner of the cross that calls all people to unite to us because we are united to Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.